Hello, my Facebook friends. It's Tuesday afternoon, and that means, as you well know, that uh, it's time for Bill's Facebook study of the book of Colossians. Uh, looking forward to these uh, lessons this week because they're going to be uh, basically telling our story and telling the story. Uh, Colossians does that in such a wonderful way in Colossians chapter 2, and I'm looking forward to being able to to share that with you. Hopefully we'll have some folks that will join in along with us, uh, whether you're watching live or whether you're watching a uh, recorded broadcast of this uh, study. I appreciate very much your participation and uh, support in all of these uh, great, great scripture passages uh, that we get to talk through. Uh, some folks that are coming along on our way and we'll say hello to a few as we see them. My cousin Gail and Keith, yay! Keith Allen, hello, my cousin Keith Allen. Actually, his last name is Addison, but you know, because I'm from Southeast Texas originally with my roots, then it's, you know, Keith Allen and Tracy Dean and, you know, Joe Bill and all of those, except when I was a boy, it was just Billy. So I'm not sure how I missed out on that. Um, but glad to see you, Keith and Gail. Wonderful to see you. Great to see uh, my dear friends, Lenny and Joe. Uh, we love you so much. Y'all are just so special to us and others that will be joining along the way. Um, looking forward again to these to these lessons and uh, as you see from the title <laughs> the title is one of those words that you're thinking never use that in a sermon bill uh, meta narrative Ugh. a meta a meta narrative what in the world is that and uh, these lessons are going to be asking the question what's yours so i suppose that before we can get too much into this then we probably need to take a look at what that word actually is and what it might mean um, and according to Milton Jones, who's written that wonderful book that I've used a lot in this series uh, on the book of uh, Colossians, uh, Christ No More, No Less, uh, his chapter uh, on this section talks about a meta narrative. And he says that a meta narrative is a big, all encompassing story. And I know what you're thinking, Bill, why don't you just use story instead of meta narrative? And there's a part of me that would rather do that, believe me. <laughs> but I think that it's more than just a story. It is really the story. And I think that's what that term is trying to get to. Uh, one dictionary calls it a narrative about a narrative or narratives. <laughs> I'm not sure that's much help. I think that if I had tried that when I was at South San High School in San Antonio back in the day, uh, my wonderful junior and senior honors English teacher, uh, Miss Sheila Parker, would have said, nice try, Bill. Uh, you're going to have to do better than that. <laughs> a narrative about a narrative or narratives. But that is kind of uh, what we're talking about. We're talking about an overall, all-encompassing narrative uh, that includes and encompasses all the other narratives. And again, a narrative is a story, your story, my story, um, and how it fits into the story. Uh, another dictionary online says a meta narrative is a grand narrative common to all. And I kind of like that. It's a grand, it's the grand narrative. Uh, and when you talk about your story, your meta narrative, it's more than just what happened to you this week or what happened to you when you were uh, six or 10 or 50. Um, it is what what has happened to you 
that has made you who you are uh, in one all-encompassing uh, story. Uh, and I think that's, uh, that's getting to what we're talking about. And I think in our day and time today, uh, it's an important question. Uh, what's your meta-narrative? Uh, some in today's culture, and this is why I think it's so important, some in today's culture say there is no meta-narrative. There is no adequate, all-encompassing, complete, uh, grand story. Um, there is no ultimate truth that applies to everyone. That's what some say. And so instead of the truth, it is now your truth or my truth. And whatever the truth is to you, then go with that. Uh, whether it's accurate or not, not a big deal. If it's your perspective, if it's your take on the truth, then that's all that matters. But logically, that will never work. And we, when we really consider it, we realize that that, is, that, that whole argument is, is a, a fallacy. Because we know that there is, um, there is different perspectives on the truth, certainly so. Different opinions about the truth, certainly so. But it doesn't change what the truth ultimately is. And I think in our culture today, we especially need to hear that message that says there is one all-encompassing story. There is ultimate truth. And when we recognize that and acknowledge that, then the next question is the one we're dealing with today. Okay, now how, what, how does my story fit into the story? How does the story of my life uh, fit into the ultimate meta-narrative. Uh, how, how is it that my life and my story and my narrative fits into the story? Uh, and and how, do I, how do I make that connection? And, and what, what does it tell me about how I should live my life? You see, I still believe, I really do believe that that is the main purpose and function of the Bible, but especially the New Testament, because I, I think there's a lot of instruction to us about the what, um, you know, what is the story, what happened to Jesus, all of those things, especially, of course, in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and what happened in the days of the early church in the book of Acts, and then the letters addressed to Christians. But what we forget sometimes is that Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts were also addressed to Christians. Yes, they talk about the days of Jesus' life on this earth and his ministry and his death and burial and resurrection and ascension. And yes, the book of Acts talks about the first few decades of the early church. It talks about that. That's true. And the letters are addressed to those churches and to those Christians. I get that. I get that distinction. But we have to remember that all of the books, including the Gospels and the book of Acts, uh, were letters during the time of the church. And they were written by Christians, by Christian leaders for Christians, for the church. And so I really think that the overall purpose behind those, uh, behind our whole New Testament, is to help Christians know how to live the faith in a secular, sinful world. Um, I think the scriptures in the New Testament especially are, call, are calling us to live a certain way that honors and glorifies God and helps others to know the story 
and to place themselves in that story and to respond to that truth, that ultimate truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, and so those who say there's no ultimate truth, there's no all-encompassing story, I disagree. And I really believe that the Bible disagrees. Uh, we have, each of us, an all-encompassing story, a meta-narrative. And in the eternal plan of God, each of our stories, our narratives, our whole encompassing meta-narrative fits into the story, the all-encompassing meta-narrative of God's story. And so as we look at Colossians 2, then we ask ourselves, okay, how does all of that fit together? And uh, we're going to be looking at Colossians 2, primarily verses 11 through 15. But I want us to look back at the first uh, 10 verses today and introduce that and, and lead up to those verses, because I think that uh, the verses 11 through 15 that we're going to be especially focusing on this week are, it helps us to understand what came before those verses because they stand on that. So Colossians 2, first of all, verses 1 through 5. Again, I know we've covered this, but let me remind you of it. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally, Paul writes. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. There's a good hint as to what the all-encompassing story or meta-narrative is. That they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. Verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Again, we've talked about those fine-sounding arguments, and we certainly have a lot of them in our culture and in our media and in our circles today in this country, in the United States, in the 21st century. Oh, there's plenty of fine-sounding arguments. Uh, they, they all sound they all sound good. Uh, it's hard to shoot holes in them right off the bat, uh, for the most part. And so the question is: Will we listen and follow the fine-sounding arguments of the world, or will we look for that ultimate story, of uh, the mystery of God, namely Christ? Uh, that's how he begins this great passage. And then we continue on in verses 6 through 10. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. There's the connection with those fine-sounding arguments. See to it, verse 8, that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. It depends on those fine-sounding arguments rather than on the mystery of God, namely Christ. It depends on that hollow and deceptive philosophy rather than on the all-encompassing truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Why? Verse 9, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And that can't be said of anything or anybody else. And in Christ, verse 10, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. And again, only Christ can do that. Only Christ can bring you to fullness. And only Christ is the head over every power and authority, starting with the church, as we saw in Colossians 1. But as creator and sustainer, which we also saw in Colossians 1 and in John 1, we recognize that Christ is the head over all power and all authority. Uh, and so his story, uh, the message of Jesus Christ, is greater than any fine-sounding arguments that you might hear on the street or in, in the media, on TV, on the radio, uh, on the Internet. Um, and it's, it's deeper and more fulfilling uh, and more effective and more far-reaching uh, than any of those hollow and deceptive philosophies that those fine-sounding arguments are trying to show us. Uh, because it is only Christ who is that mystery. It is only Christ who encompasses the story. Um, so what's your meta narrative? What's your story? Well, it's interesting that as Paul has spent a chapter and uh, about 10 verses now uh, talking about that story, beginning with Jesus Christ, beginning with him as creator and sustainer, beginning with him in chapter one as the preeminent one, the supremacy of Christ, the supremacy of the gospel of Christ, and then continuing on and comparing him with those fine sounding arguments, with those hollow and deceptive philosophies that the world offers. Um, and now he's going to take that and he's going to ask us, okay, where do I fit in with that? How does how do, how do I manage that? Um, what is my story? And do I have a story? Do I have a meta narrative that fits in with the all encompassing story of God, of Jesus Christ? Well, Paul certainly believed that he had a story. As Luke writes the book of Acts, he's writing a narrative. He's writing a story. That's why it's so fun to read the book of Acts. I love preaching from it. I, our, I did a Facebook study last year uh, from the book of Acts, and we went chapter by chapter and told that story of the first few decades of the church. And I hope if you haven't looked at those, I hope that you will, uh, because it's an exciting story. It's a very exciting story. And in chapter 9, uh, Luke, the author of the book of Acts, same one who wrote volume 1, the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul later on in his mission journeys. But in Acts chapter 9, as Luke is writing this story of the book of Acts, the story of the first uh, part of the early church, um, he comes to a man named Saul of Tarsus, and he introduces him in chapter 8 at the death of Stephen. And then in chapter 9, uh, we read about Paul's story and his conversion experience. And we read about how he was a persecutor of the church, the, the, the leader of those who were trying to destroy the church, and, uh, and how he was going from city to city, putting people in jail and trying to uh, squelch this church that claimed that this man who was accursed, who had been crucified, Jesus of Nazareth, had been raised from the dead and was the long sought after Messiah. Um, that was more than Saul of Tarsus could handle, and he wouldn't hear of it. 
And he, as much as anyone, was trying to uh, defeat it. But then on that road to Damascus, when he was going to Damascus, a city in Syria that was um, that had Christians there, he was going to find them. He had letters and papers from uh, the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem, and he was going to put them in jail or drag them back to Jerusalem and have them stand before the Jewish leaders. Um, that's when Jesus saw him face to face. It was a bright light. Uh, Jesus spoke to Saul of Tarsus uh, from uh, uh, beyond, <laughs> obviously. And, and he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul answered, who are you, Lord? He, did, he had no idea that that was Jesus because he didn't think that Jesus was who they claimed, but he's finding out different now. Who are you, Lord? And he says, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. In chapter 26, when Paul himself is recounting this story, he informs us that Jesus said, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. I've been trying to goad you forward, and yet you keep kicking back at it uh, like a stubborn ox, and, and, and it's impossible for you to do that. And so Saul then says, who are, what should I do, Lord? And he tells him, go into the city and it'll be told you. And Paul, Saul of Tarsus at the time, he'll become Paul um, as he is called on his uh, mission journey, uh, the first mission journey. Um, Saul of Tarsus goes into the city and Ananias, a Christian man, is called by Jesus to go and share the gospel with, um, with Saul. And Saul is praying and fasting for three days and three nights. He's, I mean, you don't, you don't have to tell him that Jesus is Lord. He saw him face to face, and now he's blind. He has to be led into the city. He's praying and he's fasting. He's certainly penitent. But then as Saul himself tells the story in Acts chapter 22, Ananias comes to him, and he tells him in Acts 22, verse 16, Saul, what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on the name of the Lord. Um, for Saul of Tarsus, and I think for everyone today, that is the response of faith, to believe in Jesus, just as firmly as Saul did. Even though we don't see him face to face like Saul did, we can still believe him because we have that testimony. Uh, to repent of our sins, that's what Saul did when he prayed and fasted for three days. Uh, to confess that faith and to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of our sins, so that our sins can be washed away. Uh, that's still a part of Saul's story because he's not saved until those sins are washed away. And Ananias tells him, look, Saul, you've done pretty good so far, but you need to get up and be baptized and wash away your sins. That's how you call upon the name of the Lord. And it's very similar to what we read about here in Colossians chapter 2. Because in Colossians 2, verse 6, he talks about how they had received Christ as Lord. And this whole passage talks about what that means. Not only about how it's done, but what it means in our lives. And that's where we get into verses 11 through 15. And we hear that. But I want us to speak just a little bit more about Saul and his story. Because Luke tells that story in Acts chapter 9, but then Saul himself, Paul, the Apostle Paul himself, recounts it as he has to defend himself before the Jewish and Roman leaders in Acts chapter 22 and in Acts chapter 26. Ultimately, he tells this same story before uh, the emperor himself, Nero, in Rome, but Luke doesn't tell us that part. 
Uh, he ends the book of Acts with uh, Paul waiting to, for, for that opportunity, but continuing to preach the message of Christ to anyone who would come to him and listen because he was under house arrest there. Um, and so Paul himself tells the story, and he tells the story also in Philippians chapter 3 and in 1 Timothy chapter 1. In both of those passages, Philippians 3, the first 14 verses, and 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 through 17, he tells his story. He talks about who he was. Uh, as we think about that in 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, these words that I think are very familiar with a lot of people. 1 Timothy 1, verse 12, he says, I thank Jesus, Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And he says much the same in Philippians chapter 3. He calls himself a Pharisee of Pharisee, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Uh, one who was persecuting the church. That's how, that's how zealous he was. That's how genuine and sincere he was. Uh, but when he came face to face with Jesus, the resurrected Lord, he did a complete 180. And he began, began as, as uh, Luke records in the book of Acts, people heard that the man who was trying to destroy the church was now preaching that message he had been trying to destroy. And so because of this, Paul offers this wonderful doxology, this song of praise in 1 Timothy 1, beginning in verse 15. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. The traditional translation in the King James Version of whom I am chief. Paul considered himself the chief of sinners, the worst of sinners. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It's easy to tell your story. You first have to know it <laughs> and acknowledge it that you have a story and that it fits into the story. And Paul was able to do that. He does that here in 1 Timothy 1. And he talks about how because he was saved, because God demonstrated that he could forgive Saul of Tarsus, he demonstrated that he could forgive anybody. Whatever it is that's keeping you from your creator, whatever it is that's keeping you from a close relationship with Jesus Christ, with responding in faith the way Saul of Tarsus and so many others of us have done, Know for sure that Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection and the empty tomb now uh, tell us and affirm that God will forgive your sins as well and that he wants more than anything to be in a close relationship with you. How do you do that? Well, that's your story. That exact thing is how you do that. And so I want us to think of those passages, but then take a look at this, these verses in Colossians 2. And I'm going to read them right now, verses 11 through 15. And then I want us to, to talk specifically about these verses on Thursday. And I hope that you'll join us then. Colossians 2, verses 11 through 15. 
after speaking about how Jesus Christ is uh, in completely uh, deity, he's the Son of God, all the fullness of deity lives in Jesus Christ, and it is in him, he says in verse 10, that we have been brought to fullness, because he is the head over every power and authority. Now Colossians 2 verse 11, in him you, talking to the Colossian Christians, talking to us, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by or in Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins, verse 13, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross." You're thinking, wow, Bill, those words sound pretty familiar. They sound a lot like Romans 6. That's right, they do. They sound a lot like Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, and Titus 3, verses 3 through 8, where Paul says that we were dead in our sins, and then God made us alive with Christ. And that's exactly right. I think this passage, very similar to Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, that great passage that says it is by grace you've been saved through faith. Through that response of faith, this passage gives us a little bit more information about what that looks like. Uh, Romans 6 does the same thing, that we die to sin. We're buried with Christ through baptism into death, and we're raised to live a new life. Very similar to what he tells the Colossians in these verses that we'll look at in depth on Thursday. And then he goes on and he connects it with the cross. You see, sometimes we might want to just emphasize verses 11 and 12. And that's okay, because that calls us to that response of faith. But without verses 13, 14, and 15, that response of faith that we read about in verses 11 and 12 would have no power whatsoever. But because Jesus died on that cross, because he overcame every power and authority, our baptism means something. Our baptism is more than just getting wet. Um, and so I want us on Thursday to take a deeper look into these passages and to remind ourselves of that great, those great verses in Romans 6 and in Ephesians 2 and in Titus 3 um, to talk about being that new creature in Christ, that new creation, um, as 2 Corinthians 5 calls it. Um, and, and I want us to do that in light of our own story. Remember that these lessons are entitled... So what's your meta-narrative? On Thursday, I'm going to tell my story, just like I just told the Apostle Paul's story, just like he did in 1 Timothy 1 and in Philippians 3. And I want you to think about your story, your narrative, your meta-narrative, the ultimate story of how you fit in in God's plan. Because I want to share a little bit about myself uh, on Thursday and how that happened. And many of you know that very, very well. Some of you uh, wonderful friends that have been with me for such a long time uh, have, have been a, a very big part of that. 
but you have a story as well. And so if someone were going to ask you, what's your story? Could you tell it just as easily as Paul did, just like I will do on Thursday and have done many, many times. I hope that you will listen in and be a part of that and invite someone to listen in as well or to see it and watch it at, at a later time. So what's your meta narrative? We all have one. Whether we acknowledge it or not, we have one. And I hope that your story is one that affirms and acknowledges that your story is a part of the story, the mystery, the all-encompassing meta narrative, the story of God's love for us and of the sacrifice he made by giving his only son and how he raised him from the dead and how now he calls on us to believe in that sacrifice, to trust him, to receive him as Lord, to die to sin, to be buried with him through our baptism as an act of faith and to be raised to live a new life that honors and glorifies him. That is our story. I look forward to sharing you more, sharing with you more about that story, my story, your story, the story on Thursday. God bless.